1: Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Before we read out our Patreon subscribers for this past week, my mother texted me and she said, you know, I'm a patron. I would like a shout out. Why don't I get a shout out every week? I said, mom, it's not every week. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I was like, we did shout her out. I remember. I, I I remember Shep, but she said, "I'm your mother." We, sh- I should get a Patreon shout out every week. She subscribes at the ten dollar tier level. I wow. do. I she listens. I get text messages from her, and she's like, "I was listening to your Patreon episode." She figured it out. She, you know what? If my mother. <laughs> She's pretty good at technology, I got to yeah. say. She's she she's probably even, better than me. Honestly, <laughs> she might <laughs> even be better at technology than I am. Yeah. So, but my mom is a Patreon subscriber and she says, look, she says our shows on Patreon are good. Okay. So take her word for it. Yeah. This is a, this is your shout out, Mom. I love you. And let's shout out our other subscribers from this past week. We had Melissa, Oprah, June, Teresa, Jennifer, PM, Michelle, Halls Balls, Marion, Noah, Melanie, Megan, and Nicola.
0: Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Desi, I'm very excited for this episode today. Yeah. So today we will be diving into all things Studio 54. If you don't know, Studio 54 is probably the most famous nightclub of all time. Probably. I mean, it's pretty up there, and it's for sure an icon of 1970s excess in all the best ways. The nightclub was started by two college pals and Brooklyn boys, Ian Schrager and Stephen Rubell. Uh, Ian was the introvert of the group. He was sort of the behind the scenes person. And Steve was the extrovert extrovert and the face of the club, as well as the judge, jury, and executioner of Studio 54's infamous velvet rope that left hordes of people begging to get in, most of whom left bitter and sad that they didn't make <laughs> the cut. Let me tell you. <laughs> According to music mogul Ahmet Ertugan, when Steve and Ian started Studio 54, I think they thought that they'd have just one of the big discotheques in town. I don't think they ever imagined it would end up as the greatest club of all time. I bet
1: there's still adults today who weren't let into Studio 54 who are furious about it.
0: I mean, you can't help but like read about this and watch some of the documentaries that I'll tell you about later and see the faces and be like, I would be really <laughs> upset and I probably wouldn't even try because I would no. want to be rejected. Because there's no, I mean, I'll get into it more because it's really like a fascinating uh, aspect of this story for yeah. sure, for me anyway. Um, it became this club though, I think, because it really captured a moment and hit on this convergence of things that were happening in society and culture at the time, especially celebrity culture and obsession that really entered a new level around this period. And it's definitely the precursor of what we kind of see today. Like, we were becoming more obsessed with the personal lives and wanting to see the celebs down and dirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really kind of started around this period, I think. That well, was this, this, that was different than the glory days of Hollywood. Like The studio system was over. Yes. So celebrities weren't as
1: carefully monitored and sort of yes,
0: like there were always always tabloids, but it was next level during this period for sure. Yeah. Um, And what else could be better than tearing up the dance floor with Elizabeth Taylor on one side and a coked out leather boy on the other? Like that was sort of the glory of this place. It it really is my dream. Uh, what made it special and what made it work was that everyone who got in was treated like a star. Um, and that was really integral to this like vibe they had there. Um, and getting this mix of people was key to having uh, this great experience. According to Schrager... They were making all this money without a physical product. What they were selling was this magic the freedom to be who you wanted to be without repercussions and the excitement of entering a world where you truly never knew what could happen. It was the original FOMO. Like, people were like, I need to go. Like, what happened? I don't want to miss a single night because you never knew who was going to show up and what would go down. Um, In my head, this club was around all of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, but it was only around 33 months total. What? Yes. The Life of 54 was cut abruptly short, according to Witt Stillman, who met his wife at Studio 54. He is a director. He he directed a movie kind of based on uh, Studio 54. At the height of it, he says it was suddenly over. But obviously, the cultural impact of that period and the place still intrigues everyone today. Well, if you think about it,
1: a lot of hot nightclubs, I don't know what the nightclub scene is like today, but I remember like in the early 2000s, it was like nightclubs were hot for like a few months.
0: I mean, yes, that is true, but. You know, growing up in, like, 90s New York, there were nightclubs, some of them owned by Ian Schrager, that lasted many years. right? Uh, and this one, I feel like so much happened there that maybe it just seemed like it was around yeah. forever because it's like, how could all of these parties and things have happened? Right. But it was jam-packed every fucking night. Like, right. So, yeah, I was shocked. I was like, 33 months? Like, <laughs> that's not even three years. <laughs> I know my math. Uh, okay, before we get into how the club came to be, let's get a little back Oh wait, sorry. I skipped my sources. Three books inside studio 54 by Mark Fleischman, the last party by Anthony Hayden guest and a studio 54 book by Ian Schrager. I also watched an A&E biography on Steve Rubel from 1998 called Steve Rubel Lord of the Disco. (laughs) It's really good actually. Um, And a really good documentary on Netflix about Studio 54, that's just called Studio 54. I also read some old newspaper articles from that period, from most of the New York tabloidy type papers. So now, before we get into how the club came to be, let's get a little background on the duo who brought it to glittery life, (laughs) Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager. Nice, Desi. Thank you. Steve was born on December 2nd, 1943, and grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in Brooklyn. This is a very close-knit family, uh, and he also had an older brother named Donald. Steve is said to have gotten his gift of under...
1: Masha, was you not?
0: Uh, it sounded like something popped off, like something was like fermenting. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Uh, So Steve is said to have gotten his gift of understanding people and making them feel seen from his mother. And from his father, he got his tennis ability and his small wiry frame. Unlike brother Donald, who was six foot two, Steve maxed out at five foot five, something he definitely felt a little insecure about, especially when teachers would always be shocked when they found that he was the little brother of the strapping Donald Rubel. They were always like comment, like, you're Donald's (laughs) brother. I mean, six two is pretty big when the dad and other brother are five five. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... But what he lacked in size, he made up in personality. He was very energetic, loved to gab, and would even get in trouble for gabbing to people during tennis matches. He'd have like people all hanging out on the back of the courts while he was playing and chatting with them. Uh, in high school, he was very social, and he was the person who would sort of organize get-togethers and events, including going to uh, late-night diner hangs. He's like, let's get going. I used to do that all the time. You if would- you grow up in that area... Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island. You go to diners yeah. and have disco fries like all the time. Yeah. You were the diner wrangler? I wasn't that person, but I went and ate those fries. Yes. <laughs> I was the fry eater. I was like, sure. <laughs> fries with gravy and cheese. Okay. Um, so playing tennis really expands his worldview because, you know, he's in this middle class Brooklyn area, and now he's going into these more waspy, rich areas to play tennis. And he's like, oh. I want to live in that kind of uh, lifestyle. He was very ambitious and definitely had something to prove. After high school, he goes to Syracuse University, where he once again becomes the big man on campus, you know, organizing social events. One of his specialties is befriending people who have power. Uh, He does become pals with the university chancellor, and then he's able to kind of curry favor with students like, oh, yeah, I'll talk to the chancellor about that. Uh, no problem. Steve and Ian meet in 1964 at Syracuse. At the time they meet, Steve is very popular. As I mentioned, he's now seating these Saturday afternoon football games, which is a big deal. He that means he knows everybody, right? They're both in Sigma Alpha Mu fraternity. Mu, uh, no. yeah, Mu. And according to Schrager, they were both into the same chick. He says, we were dating the same girl, and from the way we went about competing for her, we came to respect and like each other. And the friendship just got closer and closer and closer. I would say from the end of 1964 until Steve died in 1989, I spoke to him every single day. A lot of people who went to Syracuse were from Westchester and the five towns of Long Island, and Steve and I were both from Brooklyn. We grew up within walking distance of each other in East Flatbush, so we had the same middle class background and values. Now, because Steve stayed on to get his master's, um, Steve is older, like a few years older, they ended up being there together for three years. Another thing they had in common was that they both worked their way through college, which was something they bonded over. Rubel went to Syracuse on a partial tennis uh, scholarship. He worked in the student cafeteria, delivered pizzas at night, and Schrager worked in like a local restaurant, basically dishwashing, busboy, waiting tables, whatever he had to do. He also goes through some awful events uh, while at school, Ian. During his junior year, his father dies, which created this... Awful thing in his family because when his father died a Florida newspaper ran an obituary that linked him to some illegal gambling operations like out of nowhere oh. which obviously devastated the family especially the mom who was distraught when these things came out she dies a few years later Which leaves uh, Ian to kind of pick up this family uh, because he has a lot of things going on. His sister is mentally unstable and also divorced. She has a daughter who has cystic fibrosis, which is a serious medical condition that needs a lot of care and money to treat. He also has a brother still in junior high. So this is a young family still. He really feels this need to get successful and have a career going to kind of help out. After graduating from Syracuse in 1968, Ian gets his law degree from St. John's University in Queens. He goes on to work at a Manhattan firm for three years. And then in 1974, he starts his own practice. His first client is Steve Rubell. Now, for Steve post-Syracuse, this is around Vietnam War is happening. He's very worried about getting drafted. So to avoid that, he joins the Army Reserves, and even in this situation, he is still Steve Rubell. While other reserves are sleeping in tents, he manages to get himself into a motel, and eventually gets all the other guys in the motel too. He's like, I'm not sleeping in a tent, <laughs> which I I, I I respect this. Um, so after his obligation in the reserves is finished, he starts working as a broker on Wall Street. He likes the gambling aspect of it and not working for someone else, but not much else about that job. Ian speaks of his surprise um, when he realized just how ambitious Steve was and how rich he wanted to be. But more than that, he really wanted to take the world by storm. Like He kind of wanted to be famous. Now, Steve eventually leaves Wall Street because he fucking hates it. He's really bored there. And he talks his father into giving him $15,000 because he wants to get into the restaurant business. One of the hottest franchises at the time was Steak and Ale. He, find a lo- he found a location that he knew would be a perfect Steak and Ale restaurant. He pitches the idea to Steak and Ale uh, corporate headquarters, and they loved it. So much so that they stole the idea and cut Steve out of the deal. His brother talks in, I think, it was the a biography. He's like, the next morning I came and Steve was in his bedroom, completely distraught with chewed pencils and papers all over the floor. And he was like, my life is ruined. <laughs> like that's how seriously he took this devastating backstab from fucking steak and ale. <laughs> but undeterred, he took the money from his dad and decided to open his own version of steak and ale called the Steak Loft. The
1: Steak Loft. The Steak
0: Loft. He found the perfect location in Rockville Center, Long Island. Uh, and he even had a partner named Neil Schlesinger. Now, Steakloft, uh, their slogan was make love to your stomach. Ew. Which honestly sounds a little aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't want you going up that far that my stomach feels <laughs> it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I could not find an old Steak Loft menu. I looked. I tried to screen grab it from the (laughs) A&E biography when I like scrolled (laughs) over. All I managed to get though was that all Steak Loft entrees include soup, shrimp, salad bar, and a baked potato. Wait a minute.
1: (laughs) All Steak Loft entrees include
0: shrimp? Yeah. I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming it's like salad bar, shrimp, like all you can eat shrimp. I'm there. Uh, they still exist, but I don't know if, if this deal still exists. I was like, and baked potato, you had me at shrimp. <laughs> like it's like custom made for us. Um so he Quickly expands the Steakloft Empire, um, but he gets in trouble with creditors because he kind of expanded too fast. He doesn't really know how to run restaurants, and he can't pay his bills. It's at this point he hires Schrager to be his lawyer. Now Schrager not only helps him out of this mess with creditors, but they decide to become business partners. Now Ian is not interested in the restaurant business. But in addition to his 13 steak lofts, Rubel had interest, like a financial interest in two disco clubs, including one in Boston and one in Douglaston, Queens called the Enchanted Garden. Ian became curious about that side of the business. So Steve had just gotten into the club scene at this point, even though he's like in his late 20s. He is pretty much uh, super focused on building his business and being a success um, he didn't even drink at the time or do drugs. He didn't have much of a personal life at all. His friends finally convince him to go into Manhattan and introduce him to this underground club scene that's happening. A lot of these clubs, the biggest ones are run by a man named John Addison. He was like the club kingpin or whatever, uh, in Manhattan. Uh, he becomes intoxicated by the scene. He has this mini restaurant empire and he leaves Brooklyn for a Manhattan apartment during this period because he wants to go to these fucking clubs and he doesn't want to be in Brooklyn anymore. Uh, It's mid seventies, New York city. So we all know the deal with that. We've all seen documentaries. (laughs) It's really run down. The crime rates are very high. I love seeing images of this trash period in New York city, um, it looks like shit. The city is basically bankrupt after a massive financial crisis, where their their debts are called in. Uh, President Ford has abandoned New York City. <laughs> he refuses to bail them out. The city is fucked. Uh, you get the drill. Now, <laughs> but at the same time, the people who live there are like, we're desperate to have fun again, and. We want the New York City back that was, you know, from the olden days where it's fun and glamorous and people are going out, living it up at night. So this underground scene is very uninhibited. Disco music had replaced folk music at this point. The clubs are no longer there, no one's hiding their sexual orientation anymore. This is a very gay scene. The gays are like bringing this up, like they're doing it all. Um, but obviously this has a huge crossover appeal with everyone who just wants to be free in their own way as well. Steve and Ian went to a lot of clubs trying to figure out what they wanted to do. Um, I mean, just a brief rundown of this disco music obviously came out of the black clubs, the gay clubs, uh, picked it up pretty fast and they were very integrated, the gay clubs during this period. So that's how that kind of happened. Obviously there's a lot of gay men working in the fashion industry in various uh, ways and they're all friends with models and uh, hot women. So the women want to go to the gay clubs and hang out cause they're not bothered by guys. Uh, unfortunately the guys straight guys are like wait all the hot women are going to these gay clubs so they want to go to these clubs as well and it just becomes this real mix of everybody at these clubs it's um, if it's a hot spot in New York City it is very integrated with all types at this point and I think that's part of what makes this scene pretty electric at the time now one night Steve, Goes with Ian to Le Jardin, which is um, one of John Addison's biggest discos. This is in a basement of a seedy Times Square hotel, and it's considered to be the first gay disco that transcends just having a gay clientele. Uh, According to Schrager, that was the place that had the biggest impact on us. You could absolutely cut the electricity in the air. For lack of a better term, it was like a Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a frenzy on the dance floor. The music was reverberating around the room. They had lighting effects. And it was like, boy, overwhelming. Sex in the bathroom. All of it was going on. And no matter how hard John Addison tried to keep straight people out, he couldn't. (laughs) I remember seeing Bianca Jagger there by the way John Addison is gay so I think he really started off just making these clubs for gay people or gay men especially Um, but that's where he first sees Bianca Jagger at this Le Jardin the first time I ever saw her she was so beautiful the Rolling Stones had a party there during their 1975 tour, if Mick Jagger came to your club, that was all you needed or Andy Warhol. When Andy Warhol went to a club, it was like the good housekeeping seal of of, of approval. But what really impressed Ian was the lines of people waiting for a chance to get inside. He quickly realized this is a massive money-making opportunity. Now, a cousin of John Addison's named Maurice Brahms opens up the next hot club called Infinity, which is a dance hall on Lower Broadway. He hires this club impresario named Carmen D'Alessio to host these huge monthly parties. Now, she had worked... For Valentino. Uh, and she just became this person who was sought after by club owners because she had this huge mailing list of rich Euro trash. Uh, because <laughs> she's she's from, you know, she worked in Europe for so long. They're all leaving Europe because of the J. Paul Getty uh kidnapping at a Rome disco in 1973. So they're like, we don't want to stay in Europe anymore. We wanna go to trash New York City and not get kidnapped. Um, she says, I did a party called Carmen's Carnival in February of 1976, and Steve and Ian spotted me for the first time. When I met them, I was on the shoulders of Sterling Saint Jacques, this gorgeous six-foot-something black male model, and I was dancing away in one of my beautiful Giorgio St. Angelo outfits. So of course they wanted me for the Enchanted Garden. Now they have this Queen's Club called the Enchanted Garden. Uh, It is an 11-room mansion in the middle of a golf course. So it's like real snooty looking. It's brick with ivy all over it. Um, Rubel had a share in this this club. He actually bought John Addison out, who also had shares in it, and he gave up his stakes in that Boston club he had owned. And they basically own this Enchanted Garden place now. It's in Queens, though. Uh, She said... Carmen says, we started with a thousand and one nights party. We had elephants and camels. It was such a production and we ended up on the cover of Newsweek. So uh, Maureen Orth, who now works for Vanity Fair was the Newsweek uh, writer who wrote this article on disco culture Uh, she sent her assistant, a woman named Betsy Carter, to check out the club in Queens because they had been hearing about all these big theme parties that they were having. Steve Rubell picks up Betsy in a limo with his mother and father in the back seat because they're getting this huge story finally. And he says to her, this is the most exciting night of my life since my bar mitzvah. (laughs) (laughs) So this club in Queens becomes crazy. Um, In addition to these monthly theme parties, they also have various rooms that are themed inside this mansion. It's a huge success. The neighbors obviously hate it because it's like loud. And then there's drunken clientele kind of walking around the neighborhood afterwards. Steve obviously turns his charm on and convinces the neighbors to let them stay another year, but they really want to move into Manhattan anyway. So they're kind of like our time here is done. They're looking for the right space. But as I mentioned, the competition is very fierce. Everyone wants to open up a club. According to that Newsweek article, 8,000 dance places had opened across the country in the previous two years. Disco, as I mentioned, is uh, you know working its way up the charts. It's all over the charts. In New York City, I mentioned earlier the... There was the gay fashion industry people with their model friends. And now it's more top tier. You have big-time designers, photographers, hair and makeup people, and their glamour girls are more big-time as well. Now you're getting celebs and socialites like Paloma Picasso, Angelica Houston, Jerry Hall, Janice Dickinson, Amon, like all of those type of people. You're also getting Andy Warhol and his posse, who, as mentioned earlier, will make anything big. He has that whole factory crew. In 1976... Um, they're at this club called Hurrah. This is a club that's on West 62nd Street and run by Arthur Weinstein, who was a Le Jardin waiter and and an ex of Jessica Lange. Um, Carmen D'Alessio is also there. And she introduces Steve to these people who are at this uh, club, Hurrah. That's where he meets a lot of these people. He also meets at Hurrah a Swedish male model named Uva Harden. This person is married to an actress named Barbara Carrera, um, this is a rival of Bianca ja- uh, Jagger, and all of Bianca Jagger's refer to her, her as the other Nicaraguan. Oh, <laughs> they're they're very dismissive of Barbara Carrera. Now, Harden has plans to open a club of his own. He has found the perfect space at two hundred and fifty-four West Fifty-fourth Street. It is called Studio Fifty-two. <laughs> That's what that building is originally called. It's a CBS studio where they used to tape What's My Line and Captain Kangaroo. Um, he has a backer, a man named Frank Lloyd, who owns the Marlborough Gallery. Uh, and he has Carmen D'Alessio lined up to put on these big events for him. But his backer uh, loses a case with the heirs of Mark Rothko and basically elopes to the Bahamas and leaves the project in the in the dust. So he's now without a backer. Um, he's desperate. So he meets Steve and Ian, and he's like, what about coming to the Big Apple once and for all? They came and see the space, and they love it. Um, and that abandoned space will eventually become Studio 54. So this is on 54th and Avenue 8. This is not a great area back then. Uh, it's very seedy. Um, They show some clips in the documentary (laughs) that are very funny. Like one person on film is literally getting pickpocketed. (laughs) Like it's where you go to get pickpocketed, not to have a fabulous club night out on the town. It's an absolute shambles. Um, The studio, it's like a theater. Uh, Before that it was an opera house. So it's really beaten down. Um, And regardless, they sign a one-year lease. So they're, they're sticking to it. Now, they eventually take it over completely giving in a finder's fee and they find a new backer, uh, a man named Jack Doshi, who is owns a discount store in Brooklyn and they met him because his son had a disco bar mitzvah at Enchanted Garden. I love it. Which sounds amazing. Now, they each have one third interest in what is now being called the Broadway Catering Company and they lease the building under that title. Now, <laughs> the reason they do that is because it takes a really long time to get a liquor license mm-hmm. and it's a very hard process to go through. It costs a lot of money and time. Um, so their solution to that is they will get one day catering licenses as this Broadway catering corp. So every day they sign up to get a liquor license for the day. Now this will come back to bite them in the <laughs> ass because obviously you're not supposed to do it that way. So Dushy basically puts up 500 thousand dollars in cash they have six weeks to get this club up and running Um, it's a construction a massive construction job um, and and none of the club builders or like the the architects and contractors will work with them they've been blackballed because everyone is like no you can't have my people no one wants them to build this club so what they do is they they go a, a more unique route everyone who worked on studio 54 had never worked on a nightclub before Um, They had architects who had done restaurants in Soho. The lighting was done by Jules Fisher and Paul Marantz, who had done the Broadway show Chicago. So that's why this uh, place has this theatrical lighting uh, that definitely set it apart, they took advantage of all the theatrical rigs that were still in the building from the CBS uh, studio days, and they really used what they had. They didn't, like, one of the things I love is they did not gut the place and hollow it out and just make it a black box. Like, they did paint over some ornate gold stuff black, yeah. but you could still see, like, the texture of this ornate stuff, and they really used the theater aspect. Like, people would go up in the um, boxes, like, the, the theater balcony boxes and, like, fucking blow each other like that's what they were for (laughs) right (laughs) um so the sound was done by a man named richard long who did like every gay disco in town they had huge speakers so you could feel the music um just like it's crazy so they really wanted to assault the senses so that's why they went all in um their logo was designed by a very famous uh graphic designer who did the poster for the movie and and play equus their logo is great yeah um he also did the opening night invitation which was just the logo it's all written out it's black and gold and it says dress spectacular now these you know while ian's sort of monitoring this uh construction um steve is like working the phones and getting the word out and sending the invitations out and getting the buzz going intrigue is definitely building Claudia Cohen, who is a page six reporter for the New York Post at the time, recalls going to the club shortly before its opening. According to her, it was a total construction site. It did not look like a place that was going to open in eight to 10 days. All of a sudden, Steve Rubell burst into the room. Hiya, hiya, how you doing? Let me show you the place. I thought it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard, opening a nightclub in that location, but I was so impressed by his confidence that I left my doubts about its success out of what I wrote. Steve gave me a ride back to the newspaper. He told me his entire life story all the way down to South Street. So I went to the opening. It was like the day of the locust, but I got in and it was done in time and it was fabulous. We'll take a break here and we'll get more after the break. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cashback is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear and travel. Membership is free and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R A K U T E N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. So, opening night for Studio 54 was April 26, 1977. And by nine PM, which is early for a club club night, it's an absolute mob scene. Like wow. it is jam packed. People are in the streets waiting to get in. So many people turned out. Uh, the people, including Carmen D'Alessio, had to literally be catapulted over the club to like get into the entrance. It was hosted by Fiorucci. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just a classic sign of the times. Yes. That's an Italian um, design company, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. they designer. And they created a lot of uh, colorful disco fashion at the time. And then they had their 80s shit with the angels that you might know. I, w-
1: I wore the angel shit in the late 90s.
0: But it kind of originated in the 80s, right? It,
1: yeah, I feel like it started... Was that always their logo? That classic. The Angels? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's been a staple for a really long time. I think it comes back in time, like goes yeah. in and out. They kind of had, always... had a renaissance or they had a like a revival re- yes. re- recently.
0: So, yeah, it was like mass confusion. Now, the in the documentary, they have people who were there opening night. They talked about entering like finally getting in was just this like euphoric feeling uh it was a mirrored runway the entrance before you got into the club where the coat check was which people talk about being an absolute mess like people were literally just throwing their coats and getting whatever ticket was handed to them yeah so people probably all lost their coats that night they could hear the music like throbbing before they entered it so it was like just To be in that hallway and like know that just behind those doors you were about to enter this place, the space is gorgeous. As I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite aspects is that they had these huge sort of lamé silver lamé banquets to sit at. Mm. So that was like that's where I'd be just sitting down, people (laughs) watching. I don't need to go to the dance floor and lose my seat. Um, So more about the venue itself. It's a huge space. It could hold up to 2,000 people, but never felt overcrowded. It had very high ceilings, so it wasn't this cramped space at all. I mentioned this red carpet-esque sort of lead-in entranceway. There was a huge round bar, so people could kind of cluster around that easily. The dance floor was 11,000 square feet, and it had an 80-foot high ceiling. There was a staircase off the entrance that led to a mezzanine uh, lounge. There was another bar up there. There was a curved balcony. So it had all these elements of theater seats as well, like maroon seats were still in the venue. Um, You could watch the dancers up there. Every nook and cranny, according to Richard Notar, who was a busboy at Studio 54. By the way, Alec Baldwin was also a busboy there back in the day. He said, every nook and cranny was turned into a party room. Even the room where the guys who cleaned up keep their brooms had a sofa in it. You wouldn't believe the things those guys used to find. Jewels, pills, money, cashmere, scarves, a camera with an ounce of Coke in it. (laughs) He, um, I'm sorry, Ian said, I remember Steve calling me the next morning and we couldn't believe it. There was a picture of Cher at the opening on the front page of the New York Post. I remember it like it was today. Cher was wearing a t-shirt with suspenders, a pair of jeans, and a straw hat. The front page, the whole page, no nightclub up to then had done that. So obviously opening night is a huge success, but the days that follow are a little bit slower. So obviously they're in a panic. They're like, has everything You know petered out was that it he received steve rubell receives a call just a few days after opening night from roy halston frowick halston oh the designer it was 10 30 in the morning and the phone rang it was halston well this was big time steve at that point wasn't known by anybody uh, but he wanted to have a birthday party that Monday for Bianca Jagger. Now, most venues during this period are closed on Monday. That's the dark night. Um, so Steve gets off the phone, flips into action to make this party happen. He calls everybody in New York to come and blow up masses of white balloons, and they also go to Claremont Stables to arrange for a horse. A horse? Yes. So on May 2nd, Bianca Jagger's birthday is uh, you know a huge bash, Halston invited 150 people, but it's the best people. It's Mikhail Brishnikov, Jacqueline Bissette. Um, One of the bartenders wears a diaper and pops out of a cake. But the big event that took place that night around midnight, this white horse comes out from behind a stage, a nude couple who are having shimmery paint and sparkles all over their body come out on this horse. And Bianca Jagger takes a place on top of the horse. Those people get off. She gets on the horse. It goes across the dance floor and cameras are snapping. Now, this is like one of the most effective pieces of publicity in all of history. The photos of Bianca Jagger on this horse appear across papers all around the world. Um... Mark Benecki, who is one of the of one of the most famous doormen at Studio 54, said it just snowballed from there. Studio opened on Tuesday, and the next couple of nights, um, the like that just the ball was rolling. It was now officially a hit. The photos, um <laughs> Bianca actually, she ended up being later in life this like animal rights activist. So she eventually writes a letter in 2015 clarifying. That um, she never rode the horse into the nightclub. That's what people. I think that that rumor kind of happened that she took the horse from the streets into the nightclub, and but she just got onto it at some point. Yeah, I don't know why she felt the need to clarify that, but she did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know why it's less cruel to ever get on it inside the club, right? And
1: w- was the horse promptly taken out of the club? Was he
0: given <clears throat> apples? I have no idea. Yeah, what happened? It was giving cocaine. That she had no problem with, though. And no, I'm <laughs> just kidding. don't write me a letter, Bianca. So as much as the space and music were a vibe, the guests and employees were really where all of this magic came from. Now, I can't remember if I've mentioned this yet, but Steve Rubel is gay, but he's pretty closeted in most of his life. It is in this club where he can kind of, kind of start to be free. But one sign <laughs> that he was definitely gay to people who didn't know was he didn't hire hot women to bartend and busboy. They were all hot guys in yeah. like very, very short gym shorts with nothing else on, uh, walking around dancing as they served drinks. They were part of the show. They were part of the entertainment. Like everyone there was like guest and entertainment, basically. Um, the guy I mentioned earlier, Notar said, but it was so much fun. We jump in a limousine in our shorts and our leather jackets and go to PJ Clark's and get 30 or 40 hamburgers to go and make it to the party with like, they'd bring hamburgers. He said, I played pinball with Chip Carter, the president's son. We had these pinball machines from the Elton John party that we'd put on in the basement. Margaret Trudeau, who was the prime minister's wife of in Canada and Justin Trudeau's mom, I guess, she was there and she like got drunk and called his parents' house at four in the morning. I mean, it was just a, a crazy crazy time. So the vibe was carefully curated by Steve Rubel himself, and probably the most infamous thing about the club was getting past this velvet rope. According to Andy Warhol, the key of the success of Studio 54 is that it's a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the dance floor. And that really is true. Once you got in, you were just as good as everyone else there, but you had to get in. So, I mean, there's lots of images of this and there's certainly some uh, video in the documentary of Steve Rubel standing on uh, like a barstool yeah. above the crowd and like pointing to people. And that's where he was from eleven thirty until one a.m. Like Damn. getting these people in the club. He had his sidekick uh, Mark Bernacki, um, so he would choose people who would make it beyond this velvet rope, and they'd they'd be like on Eighth Avenue, just like <laughs> with the other people, like the pickpockets and the sex workers, whoever. It was all a mixture. And they had to stand there waiting for him. People would get so pissed at this door policy because they thought it smacked of elitism. But according to Schrager, it had absolutely nothing to do with race, creed, color, religion. It was just exercising the same discretion you'd use when you have a party in your home. And it wasn't uh, rich and pretty and like whatever elite people getting in. It was really a mixture of... Um, but you just had to be cool. <laughs> that was basically it or interesting. Bernanke was only 19 when he was working the door with Steve Rubell. Uh, he said, we had the kid who worked at McDonald's next to some movie star or a superstar model, whether they were dressed in a festive way or they were interesting, high energy, danced well, socialites, celebrities, models, you had to bring something to the table. Rubell described it as mixing a sal- like mixing a salad or casting a play. He said, if it gets too straight, then there's not enough energy in the room. If it gets too gay, then there's no glamour. I have no idea what that means. What's that? He mean? said, we want it to be bisexual, very, very bisexual. Okay. Maybe, I don't know what he means by that. I think he just wanted to be a mixture. I mean, I find gay very glamorous. <laughs> uh, Steve had a certain criteria, though. He wanted the most famous, glamorous, rich, beautiful, interesting people. He used to joke, if I wasn't the owner, I wouldn't be allowed in either. So, I mean, at least he was self-aware. <laughs> now- <laughs> <laughs> people, big people, were excluded too. Really? Yeah. Frank Sinatra wasn't allowed in. The president of Cyprus wasn't allowed in once. Um, Roberta Flack, some Kennedys, like a lot of people wouldn't make the cut. And I think I mentioned on on the uh, opening night, Jack Nicholson wasn't allowed in. No shit. But it was like an accident. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but like still, it was kind of like a hey. But that kind of built up this legendary rope. I think now. This door thing not only played up this sort of exclusivity, but it really played up this quirk of desperately wanting what you can't have. Like yeah. people were desperate to get in. If they were turned away, they'd come back the next night with different outfits, different hairstyles. In the documentary, there was like a guy they interviewed who didn't get in. And he's like, I just wish they would like tell me what I need to do, what I need to wear. Oh. <laughs> like, And it was kind of sad because it was like, yeah, I could see like, He, there was nothing like interesting looking about him at least it's like, but he wanted to go in so bad and see what everyone was seeing. Um, people used to try to bribe the doorman obviously. Um, but they actually did something pretty smart. They paid the doorman really, really well so that the bribes would not, uh, matter to them. Jade Barrymore, who is mother of Drew Barrymore, said that she witnessed um, all the things that people would do to try to get this attention. She said people were waiting in lines with the most fantastic costumes on, each one trying to outdo the other one so they could be pointed to and get in. This store policy really elevated Studio 54, I think, uh, and everyone pretty much agrees. It's not just me thinking that. Uh, It created this exhilarating commonality, according to um, Paul Wilmot, who worked at Halston Fragrances at the time. The feeling was, we're all here together and we're all really cool because we're here. In fact, if you didn't see someone at Studio 54, it meant that they couldn't get in. And that was really embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I mentioned... um, They, the celebrity clientele is obviously a big thing. They had a special guest list for celebs. um, And next to each celeb's names, it would say pay, comp, or NFU, which meant no fuck up. So that was the one you cannot fuck up with this guest. Like
1: Liza comes in. Yes. You can't fuck this up. And some
0: celebrities were charged, like Mick and Mick Jagger and Rich, uh, Keith Richards would get in for free, but other Rolling Stones were charged to entrance fee. Yes. They, were, they had like strict things. They, they had an entrance fee to the club? Yeah. They had an entrance fee. That's crazy. Really? I've paid that numerous times. To go to a nightclub? Isn't that... All, yeah. You didn't pay to get into a nightclub before? I have never
1: paid money to get into a nightclub. Oh. Maybe the only time I've ever experienced where you have to pay to get into, an, into a nightclub is if it's on, like, New Year's Eve or something. Really? I thought
2: they all charged. Is that charged. a New York
1: thing? I I've Maybe it's in, a New York thing. No, because I went to nightclubs in New York 20 years ago, and I never paid anything.
0: Well, maybe you got comped. Look, I was <laughs> a hot 18-year-old girl. Um. No, I think... I think it's pretty common. Every place, I'm thinking of every club. I mean, maybe because they have music sometimes. Uh that that changes. But anyways, they had a um, they had a list and they they did have a fee to get in. So, um the, they also had a um label for some people called NG that was no goods and they were never allowed to be let back in Ooh, because of bad behavior. Who was that? There were some celebrities, but I don't have any info into any of them. There was some Rumors I saw, like Warren Beatty was one person who got kicked out. Really? Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, I did see one clip that was something like, and most of them are still alive today, so that's why we can't know. I was like, well, that's why we want to know. Right. Who were the people who got (laughs) kicked out, and they were NGs. Now, they also had a publicist that would like... She got paid like a sliding scale. If she got celebrities in, she got a certain amount of money. If she got them into a newspaper, she would get an extra bonus. So she really got got more money the more press she got for them. Um, they usually didn't allow photographers inside, but there were professional photographers inside. So they would take pictures uh, and send them out. Now there's a lot of hilarious um, clips I saw in the documentary of Steve working the line. Uh, there was one instance where a couple a man and a woman, like, were married, and he's like the wife could come in, but the husband had to go home and change his shirt. <laughs> and she went in. There was also something I read where a wife and a husband came, and they're like, "We just got married." And he he said to the husband, "You can come in, but the wife." <gasps> so they did it both ways. It wasn't just for women. Tryhards were also punished. One Halloween, two naked women arrived on a horse dressed as Lady Godiva. Steve let the horse in and the women had to wait outside. Oh my
1: God. (laughs) That's humiliating.
0: Yeah. They considered certain people gray people and they wouldn't be allowed in because they didn't contribute anything. I guess that was just like normies or whatever they considered normie. Um, He also was adamant that uh, certain people do not come in and those were bridging tunnels. He... Coined that term bridge and tunnels. No way, Steve Rubell. So that's people from Long Island, Long Island, in New Jersey. Oh, he did not my want God. bridge and tunnels. <laughs> uh, he did not want bridge and tunnels. There is an old saying that polyester burns under the lights. Oh, my and they're God. all wearing cheap polyester shirts, right? So they're not allowed into the club now. <laughs> <laughs> That is so mean. Um, there's a scene in the documentary that is truly haunting. Um, it's like look scanning out on the faces of people desperate to get in Studio 54. Ugh. And the writer who wrote one of the books I read is interviewed in this documentary. His name is Anthony Hayden Guest. He said he compared these throngs of people to the damned looking into paradise. And it really <laughs> looks like haunted souls about to go to hell. And like, they can't get into to like the pearly gates. It was, it was like a painting or something. Oh. Now a very famous duo uh, were once rejected from entering studio Four, studio 54. And I'm going to tell you that little story right now. It was Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards of the band chic. They no, were I've heard this. Unable to get through this ultra strict door policy on New Year's Eve in 1977. According to Rogers, we were invited to meet with Grace Jones at Studio 54. She wanted to interview us about recording her next album. At that time, our music was pretty popular. Dance, Dance, Dance was a big hit. But Grace Jones didn't leave our name at the door, and the doorman wouldn't let us in. So they waited around for hours. We stood there as long as we could take it until our feet were just finally way too cold. We were dejected, and we felt horrible. They went back to Roger's apartment, which was a few blocks away. He says, we grabbed a couple of bottles of champagne from the corner liquor store, went back to my place, plugged in our instruments, and started jamming. We started yelling obscenities, fuck Studio 54, fuck (laughs) them, fuck off, fuck those scumbags, fuck (laughs) them. And we were laughing. (laughs) We were entertaining the hell out of ourselves. We had a blast. And finally, it hit Bernard. He said, hey, Niall, what you're playing sounds really good. Within a half hour, they composed a song called Fuck Off. After some lyrical tweaking, they arrived at the more top friendly, top 40 friendly title. Um,
2: first, out. we changed
0: it from fuck off to freak off. That was pretty hideous. Then, all of a sudden, it just hit me. One second, the light went, bulb went off, and I said, ah, freak out. <laughs> they released this as Love Freak that September, and that became their first number one and their biggest hit. Um, Roger says that he now considers Mark benecki a friend because it led to this big hit song. Uh, that's were, pretty funny. Were they let <laughs> in after
1: that song? I hope so. They were probably
0: they probably played the <laughs> they song. probably played the song there, not even realizing it oh. was inspired by Studio Fifty Four. So yeah, and it had, now they handled this in a great way. But a lot of patrons took this rejection. Uh, Pretty badly. Club employees would actually have to go to nearby garbage cans before the club would open and remove bottles and cans, anything that the um, angry people would throw at the door when they didn't get in or got rejected. Um, Mark Benecki said that he often had to be escorted back to his apartment. At times, it got really hairy outside. Once a regular customer had too many people or some problem, I walked him back to his limo, and all of a sudden, he starts choking me. (gasps) Um, another security guard by the name of Chuck Gerlach told uh, Hayden Guest that once a guest literally tried to crash the VIP entrance in his Oldsmobile. He said a car whizzed by. Somebody yelled out, hey, asshole. <laughs> I looked and there was a rifle pointed at me. I kind of let that side slide because he didn't shoot. Um, another morning, someone did pull the trigger. We walked through the entrance where the garbage goes out. It was closer and we were... Uh, Dead. The next thing we knew, these guys were out of a car across the street. We'd been waiting and they just started shooting above our heads. Chips of brick flew down. We dived onto the ground. I personally tried to get very friendly with the underside of a car. So they were like threatened. Yeah. Now, Studio 54 did release its own line of jeans and they had the perfect tagline. Now everyone can get into Studio 54.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What a nice consolation.
0: So... Just a month after opening, Studio 54 had its first brush with the law. Now, I mentioned earlier about how they avoided having a liquor license um, by having these day licenses saying they were operating as a catering company, Um, but as out of the loop as most of these bureaucracies might be, even they were like, hey, this is a nightclub (laughs) using a day pass as a workaround to having a legit liquor license. Um, So the guy who runs this state Liquor Authority was a guy named Michael Roth. He learned, um, so they stopped issuing these day licenses to them. Like, you're like, no, we know what you're doing. So we're not issuing issuing these day licenses to you anymore. Mr. Roth learned that they had a private party Friday night and the bar was open as usual, despite the fact that he had cut off the daily caterers permits to Steve Rubell. So this day permit permitted the sale of liquor, um, as I said before, and these are actually intended for like special functions or events like weddings or a political uh, affair, like a whatever party for when election night or something like that. Like that's what they're used for. Typically this guy, Michael Roth, he decides to conduct a one man like investigation. He gets into studio 54 somehow and orders scotch at the bar and like drinks it <laughs> then he goes to another bar to just to make sure it's not like an anomaly. Yeah. And he orders another glass of scotch or something and he is served once again. So he's like, aha, I love this guy. He's such a bureaucratic nerd. Like <laughs> that he goes and does this sting on his own. Um. So cut to like, and this place all of a sudden lights are up and like 40 plain clothes, police officers are raiding the place And this is, I'll get into it a little bit more, but this is very disconcerting (laughs) in a place like this where a lot of people are having sex, doing drugs and uh, being themselves in ways they might not want everyone to know. Uh, so the owners, both the owners and some of the bartenders are arrested. Mm -hmm. Police seize cash from the disco, um, he, the you know, the owners are basically saying that this was a misunderstanding. Um, they're going to open the next night. They send out um, like when the guests enter the following night, Uh, I think they closed that night and then they reopen the next night. They get a piece of paper that says, welcome. And thank you for joining us this evening. Due to an unfortunate misunderstanding, we are unable to serve alcoholic beverages tonight. However, we will have a variety of soft drinks and juices. (laughs) And you are welcome to drink as much as you like at no charge. Studio 54 will remain open. We thank you for helping us make it the success that it is. I mean, obviously, they still have a lot of drugs. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's not the biggest problem. In fact, Steve becomes very well known for walking around the club in this huge puffy coat that's full of drugs and money and like, especially quaaludes. Yeah. Quaaludes are Steve's drug of choice. He really wants everyone to have a quaalude. And I wish I was there to take one. I'm surprised quaaludes haven't made a comeback. Like, Why? Like, They're so ha- retro. But
1: they, there has to be a chemist out there who knows how to make quaaludes.
0: I don't. I would love to investigate the story of Quaaludes. Like, why are they no longer available? Were they just replaced with something? It seems like everyone really wants them. I never had them. I don't think I ever have either. I mean, they were like defunct by, by the time I was like, a I think teen. same. Like, I don't remember them ever being around. It's like a very seventies, eighties uh, thing. Yes. So they also have a new lawyer who helped them get through this period, and that is Scumbag Supreme Ray, Con- Ray Cone. Oh. Roy Cohn. Sorry. Roy Cohn. Sorry. I wrote it wrong. Roy Cohn. Uh, he eventually will even host his birthday party there. And the invitation is a subpoena. Um, <laughs> I'll get more into this relationship in part two. But yeah, I was kind of like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> so here's just some random funny stories. Um, There's, there is a rumor that is actually true. Someone died in an air shaft while trying to sneak into studio 54. Oh man. Um, this is from a Studio 54 man named Barrett Johnson. He tells this in the book, uh, The Last Party by Anthony Hayden Guest. The guy got stuck in a vent trying to get in. It smelled like a cat had died. He was in a black tie. People would climb down. Uh, he talks about other people trying to get in. So he actually just died in this event. People would climb down from building next door in full mountain climbing gear trying to get into the courtyard area. <laughs> Mark Benecki told BBC at one point you could buy maps, which claimed to show how to get in through tunnels up from the subway, subway, (laughs) subway, subway system, subway system. Now, uh, other people would try to crash the party. There had situations where people would climb down from the building. Oh, I said that already. Um, they had ropes tied around their shoulders. They were um tangled said they would get tangled in barbed wire this and fall to the cement pavement, which was ten feet below. He said that one time there was a guy who um really fell hard and fucked himself up. They had to call the ambulance and get a stretcher a stretcher he had broken his neck and his left wrist and he said that he still took pleasure that he finally made it inside uh he said you could see him trying to scope out the inside of the club still with a broken neck (laughs) and wrist oh this is so sad this is not gonna this is exactly what studio 54 does not want (laughs) it's (laughs) It's desperate it's too desperate um the the documentary filmmaker of studio 54 his name is matt Tirnauer. um Oh, he talked about how the doormen were paid more so they didn't take bribes. He said he didn't, um, but that didn't mean people didn't shove their hands in his coat pockets and leave drugs and money. Like they would still try to bribe him even though he wasn't taking them. Yeah. Um, So despite all this, this nonsense with the door. uh, Once you didn't get inside, it was a very inclusive space. The most touching aspect in the documentary uh, was hearing from the LGBT community at the time that it really was this safe haven for them to be themselves. They had faced harassment and violence um, in the outside world, just walking on the street, wearing what they wanted to wear, et cetera. But within the walls of Studio 54, uh, they could walk freely and be who they wanted to be uh, without fear of anything. There were also a lot of other people that weren't LGBT that just were able to be free there. Some of these people were Arena. She was a, a, I can't remember, that might've been a guy, was a Wall Street banker and could, be like a fairy godmother at Studio 54. There was also Disco Sally. She was um, in her late 70s. She was recently widowed and she would show up with her young 25-year-old boyfriend. Uh, She was a retired Jewish lawyer who became a judge and she really um, (laughs) kind of went crazy at Studio 54, the combination of cocaine and just that lifestyle. (laughs) But who cares? She's 78. Like she's living it up at the end of her life. So she would dance nonstop. She was famous for dancing from midnight till 5 a.m., only taking breaks to go to the bathroom and to to, to do cocaine. Um she she also this is post her mourning the death of her husband. She was a widow, a recent widow. So I feel like she found this disco scene and it was gave her a life again. I love Disco Sally. I love her. I mean, she had a look. She has tight pants. She would wear high top sneakers. She was a real star of Studio 54, and uh, she had her own set of fans. People loved watching her on the dance floor. Um, People, a lot of people talked about, like, this is the first place they ever saw two men kissing or two women kissing. They had, I mentioned, the balconies where you could blow people They also had a whole room in the basement with mattresses everywhere where people would fuck, like, (laughs) basically. uh, It was described by a lot of people as a theme park for adults. Now, Steve was a great host. He really wanted everyone to be happy. Uh, That's why he was walking around handing out quaaludes. He wanted everyone (laughs) to have a good time. Um, It completely... I think I've mentioned this in another podcast episode. I can't remember what the topic was, but it's it's true here too. This is a sexual, an unhinged sexual period time period. It is post um, FDA approval of the birth control pill, and it is pre AIDS epidemic. Yeah, so people were fucking. I, I think one of the quotes I saw it's like. Even if you didn't fuck someone every night, you could if you wanted to. Like It was available to you uh, if you wanted to have that. So it really was um, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam War. It just hit all these marks of party time, fun fucking times. It's the original what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because people really were free to do whatever they wanted, do drugs, be promiscuous, whatever. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, this is where Steve was finally free as well. Uh, he could feel comfortable being openly gay. He really thrived in his role as this sort of king of New York nightlife, but he still went home to Brooklyn every Sunday and was good to his family. Um, he was 5'5", five, five, Steve Rubell, a success. Uh, a details columnist named Beauregard, Houston Montgomery, <laughs> said, one night I was standing by the bar chatting with Way Bandy, and Harry King, who were the hottest hair and makeup people in the world. They did covers with Scavulo, and all of a sudden... We would see Gina Lola Bridget Lola Brigida talking to General Moisha Diane. Like it was just like a weird scene. Bridget uh, Berlin, who was one of Andy Warhol's factory workers, said, I loved getting out of the cab and seeing those long lines of people who couldn't get in. <laughs> and I just walk in and it felt so good. All those people staring and waving and taking pictures of everyone who got in, thinking you got if you got in, you must be somebody. The place did have a feeling of family. It was like going to another factory. Cause I'd see everybody from the office, all the people she was with the factory all day. Andy would be on a couch with Bianca and Halston. If you missed a night, Andy would say, You missed the best night. And if you hadn't been there, he'd be on the phone first thing in the morning wanting to know who was there. I love how Andy Warhol's like a little gossipy bitch. Yeah, of course. He loves it. Of course he is. He is so into it. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes I'm like, would I be friends with him or would he irritate me? Like it's it's a close call. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, this place did holidays really well. Um, Kevin Haley, who is a former partier at Studio 54 and an ex-model, he told Vanity Fair in 1996 that Halloween was one of the biggest nights of the year. Um, they spent $50,000 transforming the main entrance hall into a haunted mansion that included live monsters jumping out. There was a rickety bridge into a graveyard. There was howling and other strange an- uh, noises in the back. And he said, that as you came up a ramp, they had little windows and booths that you could look through. And one of the windows that stuck out to him was um, a family of little people eating a formal dinner at a dinner table. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> it's
1: crazy. Like, yeah, what? I mean, honestly, I would love to go there for Halloween. That sounds like it was probably insane.
0: I would love to go to Studio Fifty Four. Like I wish I. I, I want to go then. Oh yeah, not then. now. Yeah, I don't want to go to any revamped thing. No. Um, in Thanksgiving, uh, at Thanksgiving time, he tried to do Rubel wanted to do a holiday event for Valentino. Uh, he had waiters dressed up as pilgrims, and they were serving turkey around the club. Uh, Warhol wrote in his published diaries, he said he tried to explain to Valentino why he was doing it that way. He said he told him, well, you know, America was discovered by an Italian. <laughs> the front of Studio Stop 54 it. was decorated like the front of a boat. I lost Halston, but I found him a little later eating a turkey leg. <laughs> and me, he made me have some. The last place you want to eat meat is from a discotheque. But later I saw Steve eating the turkey too. So I guess it was okay. Not, I want to read these diaries. It's not the... It's not that the turkey came from a
1: discotheque. It's that cocaine makes you lose your appetite.
0: Who's it's just th- weird to serve turkey, of all things, in a disco, that, though. It is funny, though.
1: I think <laughs> It's that's, funny. I think that's the funniest thing you could serve at a disco is turkey.
0: Seeing Halston eat a turkey leg is <laughs> worth it.
1: I would pass out.
0: <laughs> so for Christmas, um, they had disco-appropriate holiday gifts, baggies of cocaine. Each one had a ribbon on it with a, cards addressed to eat. To people such as Calvin Klein, Bianca Jagger, Andy Warhol, Houston etc. Now, one of their most famous things was a New Year's Eve event um, where the, the event planner dumped four tons of glitter for the uh, guest to dance on. Uh, according to Ian Schrager, you felt like you were standing on Stardust. People got the glitter in their hair and their socks. You would see it in people's homes six months later and you knew that they were at Studio 54 on New Year's. Glitter, I mean, we've all had it. It never leaves.
1: Four tons of it? Yes. That that must have been there forever.
0: They were dancing on top of it. (laughs) Okay, I want to (laughs) go. That wasn't the only thing they would drop from the ceiling. Uh, They would also drop balloons full of glitter. But on one occasion, they dropped gift boxes that held pricey goods from fashion houses. That (gasps) must have been exciting. (laughs) That that must have been the night to be there. Come on. Totally. Um, It was obviously... A nonstop party, according to Kevin Haley. There didn't seem to be any guilt in those days. Decadence was a positive thing. Cocaine was a positive thing. It had no side effects, or so we thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how you enjoyed it so much. So by the end of 1977, Steve and Ian are in Studio 54 of The Toast of Town, but with success. Eventually comes arrogance and to be honest, stupidity. Numerous things are going on under the table. Bartenders talk about having to switch the the roll, the tape rolls, and the registers mid shift. Like lots of shady things. This is almost an all cash business. So, as we all know, skimming is a big thing in yeah. places like this. Um, so. It was something that Steve said, though, in a 1977 New York Magazine article about the club by Dan Dorfman that really set alarm bells off uh, with the powers that be. He is in this interview talking about how great Studio 54 is. He starts to brag about their astronomical profits, and he adds something on to the sentence about the profits saying, only the mafia does it better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah. In addition to the fact that people are already starting to resent Steve, like obviously when you're up high, people are already getting bitter about you, especially people who aren't getting into the club or maybe felt left out. It's like, who is this little fucking twerp? Um, the IRS, uh, saw this interview and were like, Oh really? (laughs) They took notice. And then they found out that in 1977, the club had just Paid $8,000 in taxes. What? And they're raking in astronomical profits. So they hook up with a bitter former employee. And we'll get into what happens next week. Uh, but the shit's about to hit the fan. Um, there's still more fabulous parties to come, though. So we'll get into that. This investigation takes a while. Uh, we'll talk about Liz Taylor's huge birthday bash. Um, Lots of other stuff. And the downfall of Studio 54 and what happens to Schrager and Rubel post-Studio 54. It's always sad times when the party ends. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's always my favorite part in the movie, and it always takes place in the 70s, like it's boogie nights or something, Yeah, when everything is just at its peak. And everyone's doing drugs without consequence. Everyone's fucking without consequence. Everyone looks hot.
0: And then someone like dies, yeah. Or it, something so, like there's something somebody, awful happens. Somebody always ODs, and then the movie just takes a dark turn. Yes, because like glitter, the party stuff is still there, and it becomes sad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah. like oh, it's like it's like being in full makeup from the night before mm. or something. <laughs> it doesn't look as good when you're walking <laughs> on the streets during the day. <laughs> so oh, yeah. yeah, I mean. That's that. Looking forward to next week. We'll have tons of pictures. There's so many good ones. I have to send you some because I have some good ones from the books. Yeah,
1: send me the pictures. I'll post them on our Instagram page this week. And we are going to record our after show now, which is available on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, where you will have access to... A lot of hundreds of bonus episodes that are not available anywhere else. Any just they're just available. Your pay, but if you subscribe to Patreon,
0: you get everything instantly.
1: Well, you get all that stuff instantly. But I was going to say that you can listen to it on your podcast app.
0: Yes, so it doesn't have to be a separate thing. No, so it's really it's pretty easy. Ask Rachel's mom how she did it.
1: (laughs) Ask (laughs) my mom if my mom can do it. Anyone can do it. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.